It is just amazing to the lady who's going to Virginia. No matter where we go, there we are. It's incredible in this fellowship. I don't know where we can go that we don't have ready-made friends. How blessed can we be, you know? And I am so grateful to be here. Uh, I am an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I state that very specifically, though I've had other chemicals involved. Alcoholics Anonymous is about alcoholism. And that's the only thing we talk about. Unfortunately for me, when I hear somebody else identify themselves as an addict in this fellowship, it separates me from them because I think it's different. And we are here to learn how not to drink this day at a time. I was good at living a day at a time, but it's never the right day. <laughs> and until I learned about living this day at a time, I wanted X number of days sobriety, X number of years, X number of decades. The only reason I'm sober tonight is because I didn't drink tonight. I haven't had a drink today. I didn't, I'm not sober today because I didn't drink yesterday. I'm sober today because I didn't drink today. And so we can break it down to this 24 hours that we're not having a drink of alcohol. Then in no time, the days add up to years and decades. It's absolutely amazing to me. I have to tell you my true story tonight, my honest story, because I walked in here and two guys from down in my neck of the woods show up. So I have to be honest. <laughs> I am an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My home group is the Mountain Group down in Fort Lauderdale. And my name is Tommy Dayton. <laughs> yeah, sure, Jeff. <laughs> I come from a very normal family, whatever that is. I say I come from a dysfunctional family because I'm it. Everybody else was perfectly normal in my family. My dad had the same job for 46 years. My mother was a homebody, a homemaker, a church organist for 35, 36 years. Um, they didn't smoke. They didn't drink. I, don't, I always say I don't think they ever did anything that felt good. I don't know how I got here, but here I am. Uh, I was the youngest of three daughters and was very active in school, high school. Not studies. I didn't like studies, but I loved sports and I loved music. I really believe that each of us in this room tonight can identify with each other. It's nice to drink in front of you. Excuse me now. <laughs> I think everybody in this room can identify with each other. I don't care whether we're old, we're young, we're skinny, we're tall, we're black, we're white, we're male, we're female. We all are alike inside. When I talk about resentment and what I call it, Siamese twin self-pity, I believe you know what I'm talking about because I don't believe we can have one without the other. When I talk about resentment, when we talk about fear, both the known and the unknown, the loneliness, the aloneness, the shame, the guilt, I know you all know what I'm talking about. Because there isn't an alcoholic in this room tonight who has not identified with those feelings. And I truly believe that my alcoholism is inside of me. 
I do not believe that bottoms are outside. We could create bottoms. And what I do say from the podium is my own opinion. But what I do know today is just interpreted through my own thinking of what you folks have taught me. And I'm ever so grateful for each and every member of Alcoholics Anonymous for who I am today. Somebody just said to me, you're going to help a lot of people tonight. I disagree with that. If anybody has helped besides me, it's because you are willing and you're in a position to be willing. So it always takes two of us, one to talk and one to listen. And I've had to listen, learn to listen real hard. I was afraid to listen before I thought they'd start talking about me. So I'd have to shut people off. I had my first drink when I was a senior in high school. I didn't have that drink with the idea of becoming an alcoholic. Um, any more than I had a first pill ordered by a doctor in 42 with the idea of becoming a narcotic addict. But 21 years, 9 months after my first drink, I had my last drink. In 42, I had a pill ordered by a doctor. In 1954, I was growing myself from morphine. And what goes on in between is the exact same thing that happened in your, in your lives. The behaviors may have been different. But the feelings about the behavior, in my opinion, are the same. If we were the bad people we think we are, we were, then our past wouldn't bother us. But our past do bother us. And we base our opinion on the behavior of the past as a result of our alcoholism. I heard a psychiatrist say one day that you have to learn how to do sober what you got drunk to do. Um, or change your value system. I used to get drunk to act out anger, to act out sexually, or to act out crying, because nice girls don't act out sexually or don't get angry, and big girls don't cry. And what went on in between is the exact same things that happened in your lives outside. I was a typical housewife alcoholic, didn't work, um, Belong to the PTA, Girl Scouts. I was a Girl Scout leader, choir mother. Drove the ambulance, not the ambulance, drove a station wagon for the Red Cross. <laughs> Sounds like some of you did the same thing. <laughs> See, I told you we were all alike. I can... I can tell you the, the range of my alcoholism by that behavior because I became the drinking Girl Scout leader, the drinking motor car driver, the drinking choir mother, the drinking PTA. You ever try to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when you're shaking like a leaf? And I remember one day the lady said, gee, Tommy, you must be coming down with the flu. Why don't you go home? Because I was shaking so badly and the drunken Girl Scout leader and the drunken motor car driver and so forth. I used to drive one of the ladies who was literally blind <clears throat> to the grocery store. And my responsibility was help her pick out the right kind of, let's say, green beans in a can. She always found the green beans in a can long before I could even find the counter where they were at. <clears throat> we were both blind. Hers from something natural, mine from alcohol. The police in my town had a little trouble with my drinking. All the Girl Scouts had trouble with my drinking. My family had a little trouble with my drinking. You know, all those outside people have trouble with our drinking because we don't even know we're alcoholics. Um, 
I've had two deliberate drunks in my life. Once when I was a senior in college. I lived in Connecticut originally. I'm from Connecticut. And we were having a hospital tour uh, in New York. And five of us decided that we would get drunk. We'd buy a pint, see what it was like to get drunk. Three of them backed out. You know which one of the two did not. Once we make a decision, boy, we're in it for the rest of our lives, even if it's going to kill us. Because changing our minds might be bad and wrong. You're a failure. And I swore I'd never get drunk again. The other deliberate drunk... Now, there have been hundreds of drunks in my life. But the second time, real purposeful drunk, my husband bought a hearse. And it was in the paranoia-like stage of my drinking... So you know what I thought he was going to do with it. <laughs> well, we had five children at the time. We had a station wagon. And he said, well, a hearse is two feet long. This is going to be our family car, our only car. <laughs> and um, he, he couldn't understand why, when he was going to bring it home, I suggested he call the neighbors before he bought the hearse of the yard. He couldn't understand why I thought he should let the neighbors know. I was scared to death. They'd think somebody had died. It didn't make any difference to him. Anyhow, um, he said, besides, if we're out on a camping trip some night and we can't find a place to park, we could park right along the side of the road. He said, you know, nobody's going to bother us in a hearse. <laughs> well, I was telling this story one night, and I thought, what if somebody did look in and we all started moving? <laughs> Well, the hearse went the next day, but not until he drove it to work one day, that day. And his uncle, with whom he was in business, thought it was just a little inappropriate for a doctor to be driving around making house calls. <laughs> You've heard this is a family disease, right? That first drink in high school was a glass of guilt. And that now, in retrospect, and everything that I know about me is in total retrospect. I didn't recognize any of it, it was as it was coming because you told me that it was a, a disease of denial. But in retrospect, that was a glass of guilt. Um, I knew that drinking was practically a sin, whatever that meant. And, but I took that drink because I thought that's what the young man with whom I was wanted me to do. Never asked him. And from there on in, until long after I came to you, I did whatever I thought you wanted me to do or be for the sake of approval, whether or not I wanted to do it. I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know I had the right to say no. And so I got into so many messes. I like to look at why I am here tonight. I am here tonight because you told me I have a fatal illness. And if I pick up a drink, it will be to die. It's progressive. It gets worse. And I don't think it's so worse on the outside. Maybe the behaviors get worse. But I know the shame, the guilt, the remorse. That's what gets worse. And certainly it's a spiritual disease because I came to believe in the spirit of alcohol. I grew up in a church, Sunday school and church, every, every Sunday. <clears throat> But when my sister was very ill in 1945 or so, I told God it was okay for her to die, and she didn't. Now, I must have always asked pretty much in my family's 
within my family's means because it seems to be I always got what I wanted. And my sister didn't die for another year or so. And I didn't know until long after I came to you that one of the reasons I wanted her to die was for me to stop hurting. Self-centeredness, wanting control, two more signs of our illness. Resentment and self-pity, yes. And I'm not proud of that at all, but this is what I've learned about me. Um, my first job, I played in an all-girls professional band, and I saw what alcohol was doing to people, and I wasn't going to let that happen to me, so I left the profession and went into the medical arts, and here I am. So it tells me that I have absolutely nothing to do with my being an alcoholic. I truly believe that the predisposition to alcoholism we're born with. And if we happen to add alcohol to that predisposition, we will become active alcoholics. But it takes a long time to begin to understand that because of the symptom of intoxication. It's a social symptom, if you will, and I think that's why we're judged so. Now, I believe that that God I grew up with was a judging God, and it is in total retrospect that I believed God was a judging God. I don't think I ever heard that, and I don't know why I thought that, except I was judging me for my behavior or lack of it. And so I had this image of God as a grandfather, the old man, white robe, you know, typical picture that we some of us have anyhow. And so because I was judging me and my behavior, I projected that judgment onto God as I understood him, or as I thought I saw him, on my father, my husband. And until my son was born, and I began to understand that you males have the exact same feelings that I have. And when you started telling me about you, I couldn't believe how alike we are. Because I know you know what resentment is and so forth, like I said before. And I honor the men in this fellowship who share their insides because that's how I began to see that this alcoholism is inside of us. My drinking progressed... <clears throat> from not drinking every day to drinking every day. I was married. We had five children. Um, my husband and I went through medical school together. I was, I was not a student. I just went and audited classes with him. And we had these five children along the way. Um, they were 6, 8, 10, 12, and 14 when I got sober. They're, I don't believe this, 55, 57. Barb died. She would have been 59 yesterday. Carolyn is 61, and my oldest daughter is 63. And <clears throat> there was the progression in the guilt, in the promises. I remember wanting so badly to have that nice smell of baking cookies in the house when the children came home from school. And I would have to have a drink. My drinking had progressed so far that I had to drink to make the decision to do it. And I would have the drink to bake the, the cookies, and then I had to have another drink to get the ingredients out. And before I knew it, I was coming to with the guilt and the shame for not making the cookies, so I'd have to drink some more. And I know you know what I'm talking about. 
I never got drunk by looking at a bottle of booze. I had to put it inside of me. I never took a bath in it. I had to put it inside of me. So I began to see that all of this disease is inside of me. The disease progressed. Uh, I remember falling down flight of stairs in our home once carrying one of our children. She was just a little thing. There was a fire in a couch that I still swear I didn't do. But, you know, we're blamed for everything. <laughs> I really believe that, too. So I don't know. But we're blamed, so we, we dutifully take the blame for it all. Um, police in my town had a lot of trouble. I uh, used to go around in Cheshire, Connecticut, dressed in the same filthy, dirty dungarees, the same... My hair would be up in pin curls for days. I had to be ready. Something very important was going to happen. And I'd sing or whistle at the top of my lungs because people thought I'd be happy, happy, happy. What a mess. I remember one night being so lonely. Now, I didn't talk about feelings. My family didn't talk about what was going on inside. We talked about time and weather and other people, especially if they weren't there. But we never talked about what was going on in our lives. And I remember saying to Charlie one night, I am so lonely. And he said, I don't know why you're so lonely. You have these five beautiful children. You have a lovely home. You can do just about anything you want to do. I don't know why you're so lonely. And you know, that was a very logical answer. So I wasn't going to talk to him about my feelings anymore. But when I had a drink, I realized I was less lonely. And it said, have another drink, you'll be less lonely. And I did, and I wasn't. It was wonderful. So I gave alcohol, and this is in total retrospect, all of my feelings. Well, I was mad, sad. I couldn't be happy because he wasn't doing anything to make me happy. So I couldn't act happy when I was happy because he hadn't done anything. I mean, what a miserable life we live. And they do too, I might add. Thank God I'm the alcoholic. I can't imagine living with one of me. <laughs> I started going to psychiatrists, first to seven find out what was the matter with him that made me drink. And I defied this doctor to, make, to tell me I was an alcoholic. And he said, well, let's take a look. How much you're drinking? I said, well, three or four a day. Well, he thought I was talking about highballs. I was talking about pints. I just didn't mention the word, you know. I went to the clergyman, find out what was the matter with God that wouldn't let me drink but keep me sober. And these were so real. The reason was so real. And I went to the medical profession other than my husband because this was all his fault anyhow. And I wanted some horrible fatal disease. I didn't know I already had one, but I wanted one. And it wasn't alcoholism. In July of 1960, I had stopped eating for six months because it was the food that made me sick. I was still not an alcoholic. And I don't ever want to forget that when I'm 12-stepping anybody. Until I lost faith in alcohol, I could not believe that I was an alcoholic. I do not believe that we can serve two gods at one time. 
I could not serve the God I have today and the God in the bottle at the same time. Um, I lost 50 pounds because it was the food that made me sick. And I was in the Waterbury Hospital uh, for malnutrition and dehydration and was in a room with a lady who'd been injured in a horseback riding accident. The car hit the horse, the horse landed on her. And she had fractured ribs and abrasions and was to be discharged on a Monday. I was discharged on a Saturday before. And I had such an incredible need to get back to that hospital and I could not tell you why. Charlie was on staff there. He said, why do you have to go back? I said, I don't know. What's the matter with you? I don't know. But he did take me back. And that night, um, this lady and I had very wonderful conversation. I'm told I had shock treatments after that, so my mind is a little foggy about, not from alcohol, from the shock treatments that I had. But I'm told that uh, I talked to the nurses and told them I thought she was quite ill, and they looked at her and felt she was okay and said, go home, go back to bed, she's fine. And I couldn't do that. Um, I did call her doctor, and I called her husband. And they both came in, and I don't know, five, six hours later, her doctor came to me and he said, Mrs. Dayton, you've saved this woman's life. She'd had a ruptured spleen and was bleeding internally. Well, I believe, and I believe you believe, it was not I who got me back to that hospital that day. It had to be the grace of God as I'd come to know it. I went home the next day, and I thought, there must be something to this God business, but I couldn't say God. Hurt my mouth. The sides of my, you know, my cheeks kind of sunk in. I said, God. But it was the man upstairs. And I said to myself, there must be something to this man upstairs business. So you better stop drinking. And I did for about three months or something. And we were giving a dinner party one night. And as my dinner was served me, I ordered one drink. And it was a drink that lasted uh, for three months because I couldn't stop. On the November 5th, 1960, I lost faith in alcohol. It no longer did for me what I drank it to do. It didn't stop anything. The shakes, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, nothing. I took an overdose of sleeping capsules because I lost the desire to live. And the God of my understanding, whom you've introduced me to, saw fit the night I should choose to kill myself, that I should live. And when I came to the next morning, I heard me cry out, Oh my God, I can't even kill myself. What do I do? What do I do? You've tried everything else. What do you do? And that's when the first gift of AA came to me. Tommy, you're an alcoholic. That's what this has all been about. You're an alcoholic. I couldn't believe the relief that that was. That's all it was. It didn't remove anything. It just was relief to know that I was an alcoholic. I had had that thought in the back of my head a few times that alcohol was a problem, but could never bring it up. And I really believe that's because it was still a God to me. It's still a power greater than myself. And I asked my husband if he would please call a lady I knew was in the fellowship. I don't particularly like the slogan, many are called and few are chosen. But why I should live and she shouldn't, I don't know. She fell 
had very difficult time maintaining her sobriety, couldn't maintain it. And she fell sometime later, hit her head on a radiator, bled to death. Um, don't deny your, your recoveries. Don't deny your recoveries. And if any of you in this room tonight are even thinking about drinking, you're in a safe place here in the room of AA people. And if you can, make your commitment, I will not drink no matter what. I know when people pick up a drink, it's because we haven't decided not to. It's the only reason. And no commitment, we can guarantee you, no commitment not to drink is a commitment to drink. We can guarantee you, if you make that commitment to not drink, you will stay sober. That's an incredible guarantee, as long as you follow the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous inside of yourself. And I highly recommend that to you so you can have the journey that I've been having, am having. Uh, I went to High Watch, which is an AA-only oriented facility up in Kent, Connecticut, and I shall be eternally grateful. And I'm not going to try to tell you what it was like for me because you know how you felt wherever you were when you were given that knowledge, I am an alcoholic, and the one requirement of membership in AA, a desire, a desire to be sober. And the fourth day that I was up there, there was a young picture of a young man in prayer fashion up on the wall. <clears throat> and Wes, the then manager, ended up a short little sharing session at what we called a chapel with four words, let go and let God. We let go and let alcohol. I don't know why we won't let go and let God. We know how to let go. Get that bottle in your hand, you let go. Take a swig before it hits bottom, you feel better, you let go. So let's let go instead of let, and let God rather than alcohol. And Wes said just that, let go and let God. And I believe I did momentarily. And for the first time in my life, and one of the few times, I felt a weight on my right shoulder that I truly believe was the physical hand of God as I understand it. I stayed there for a little over a week, and uh, I was ready to go home, and Wes said, now go home and find yourself a group. That was easy. There was one group in my hometown at the time. Find yourself a, a sponsor. That was easy. There was one female in before I came in. <laughs> uh, how many meetings should I go to? He said, one more than you need. Should I go every day? Did you drink every day? You never answered my questions. <laughs> And, and I was so afraid to answer, make decisions, because I thought I'd be wrong. And to me, wrong was a failure. I have found that my mistakes become my experience. We can't live this life without making mistakes, and they become our experience. I had to find out what didn't work before I found out what did work. And I came down, I came back home, and I, gee, don't you feel great when you first remove that alcohol and you think this is a piece of cake and I was going to sober up the world? I had no clue of what was inside of me. And I got so active in AA, I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do. But Anyhow, I don't know what happened, but two and a half months later, Valentine's Day, 1961, that's the date of my last drink, I picked up a drink. I haven't any idea why, but it was finished, except the, re the progression was awful. I only had one or two drinks that day, didn't get drunk, 
but the remorse and the guilt, I never want to feel that way again. And I went over to my then sponsor's home and I said on this Tuesday, how am I going to have the right change for the paper boy on Saturday? And how am I going to count out five quarters for my children for Sunday school for Sunday? How do you cook turkey next Thanksgiving without a drink? How do you Christmas shop without a drink? And how am I going to celebrate my first anniversary next February 14th in 62 without a drink? And I still hear she died many years ago, but you hear her pounding her fist on her kitchen table, and she said, for God's sakes, Tommy, it's only Tuesday. Would you please use it up first? <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I was good at living a day at a time. It was never the right day. It was always a different day. After that drink, something happened. And I heard a speaker in New York don't know who said what, but you know that wonderful expression, something happened and we haven't a clue what? Something happened. And the idea, the thought, the fact came from me, Tommy, if you ever take another drink again, you have nobody else to blame but yourself. And there was only one other time after that that I almost drank after nine months, but I couldn't because I wasn't willing to take the responsibility for it. And I started to see that I had to get AA active inside of me. My first whole year, it was uh, slogans. Slogans kept me sober. They quieted the rage, the war, the chaos, the confusion that was going on inside of me. And I remember trying to wash windows. We loved, lived in this lovely home. There were 32 windows with these little panes in each window. And I couldn't even make a decision to wash windows. And I'd call my sponsor and she'd say, wash one pane. <laughs> and then I'd say, what do I do then? Call me. Well, I hated that. I hated it. It was awful. So then I started sponsoring some gals. And I started to get active in service uh, for two reasons, ego. I felt so awful about myself, but I wanted a name. I needed a name, a label, and gratitude. I am so grateful for that. I know I'm grateful. I pray I'm great, grateful enough. But some of the gals I was sponsoring weren't staying sober. And, you know, who they asked? They asked a, a great Messiah arrived when I got here. So I had already met Bill and uh, went to New York to see him and tell him about these ladies weren't staying sober. And he said, do you think I told step Dr. Bob so he wouldn't drink? And I said, sure. Because didn't you think that in the beginning? I don't know about you. I thought I had it made. And he said, oh, no. I told step Dr. Bob so I wouldn't drink. So in essence, he said, when, he was very kind, but I, he said, when you think you're so smart, you know what somebody else needs to hear. That's only because your own head needs to hear it. So pay attention to what you think somebody else needs to hear. If somebody stays sober because I've said something, it's because they were willing to listen and then use it. It has nothing to do with me. So in essence, he said, each of us who become sober and become sponsors, we become co-founders to the person who is newer than we are because you're introducing them to AA. And I never saw Bill twelve-step stop 12-stepping Ebby. Ebby had a different. Ebby was uh, Ebby Thatcher was Bill Wilson's sponsor, and Ebby had a tough time staying sober. Though he did die with 
two and a half years of sobriety, and Bill wanted you to know that and that he was his sponsor. That Ebby was Bill's sponsor. But Bill stayed sober because he never stopped 12 stepping Ebby. He discovered himself by trying to help Ebby. A great power of example as far as I'm concerned. Because Bill knew he didn't get anybody sober. Um, as Bonnie Dart, wait a minute, Donna, I know it was a short one. <laughs> I can't believe I can admit mistakes. That's wonderful. Uh, as Donna said, Ebby died when, uh, in 1966. And um, 12 of us went to his funeral. There were but 12 of us. And we knew something special was going on. 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 concepts. And I was standing with Bill at Ebby's casket with our arms around each other. And I said to Bill, who is to say if Ebby had been given the grace to stay sober that you would have? He said, Tommy, I've thought of that so often. On the way to Albany that day, and we went up from Connecticut. Um, when you're in the car with your sponsor, things happen. By the way, I do have a sponsor, and she's sober 55 years. So I needed to report that after the announcement was made. Get a sponsor who has a sponsor. And I see Sharon every Monday that we're both home in, in Fort Lauderdale. And if I'm not home, I call her. It's that connection that's so vital to me. Um, on the way to Albany with my sponsor, Hazel Rice, who was then a staff member at GSO, you know, when you're in the car with a sponsor, something happens. And my four, fifth step poured out of me. The real moral inventory. I had gotten rid of the immoral, the garbage stuff. But I didn't know what a moral inventory was. And uh, it poured out of me that day. On the way home, the third step took me. And it was, God said to me, as I understand him today, Tommy, when you wake up in the morning, the day's already born. Your only responsibility is to see where you fit into it. I don't know about you, but I used to come to and start manipulating the day to make me happy. It doesn't work that way. I have to see where I fit in to whatever's outside of me. And life goes on very smoothly. Life is. Life doesn't happen to us. Life is. We happen in life. How are you happening in life today, I always have to ask me. Um... I got very active in AA, became, uh, was given the privilege of being delegate from Connecticut in 65 and 66. And in 1966, um, 1965, we had our Toronto Convention, and that's when we dedicated the I Am Responsible Declaration. I am responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there, and for that I am responsible. Um, I'm not any different than I was when I got here. They have all those same feelings. They're modified. I know what to do with them using a different power today. I'm not going to lose any one feeling. No feeling is eliminated. We learn how to deal with it with a different power. Instead of the power of alcohol, I use the power of God as I understand Him today. And my understanding of God today is entirely different than when I the impression I had of God before. And I believe it happened when I lost my need to define God. I found God. It's not a human picture of God. 
It's a power within me, a spirit, if you will, within me that helps me to deal with the life I fit into. And life has been itself since I got sober. Um, I always take a look at my 10th step, continue to take personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it. A lot has been going on. My parents died, my sister died, my other sister died. Two of my children have lost three children. Two of my daughters, their husbands were killed very tragically. Uh, my husband chose to live his life with another family. Uh, four of my children were married, two of them a couple of times. My sponsor died in my arms in 1971. Though That's life. How we react to it is our responsibility. I had cancer surgery a year ago. Um, what a piece of cake. When you do it with an attitude. Today I'm not behind in my ironing. I'm just ahead in my washing. And that's the <laughs> honest about to God. <laughs> honest to God. The pile of clothes is the same size pile. The difference is how I look at it. I have two. Oh, we're getting towards 7 o'clock. i got to get out of here. Um, oh, don't tell me. Where were you when I was drinking? No, somebody said. I could stay. Yeah, okay. I have two wonderful stories of 12-step work that are just so precious to me, neither of which can happen again. But I don't think these kinds of things happen anymore, anyhow. Many years ago, it was probably still in the 60s, we had a gal in Connecticut who was going by bus from New Haven to Chicago by bus. Absolutely petrified. And we know that feeling, too. So we got her. She gave us her bus schedule. We got a world directory. We only had one in those days. Now there are four, I believe. And every stop along that route from New Haven to Chicago, when she got off the bus, there was a hot cup of coffee with an AA member holding it. Every single stop. That's 12-step work. We don't know today what 12-step work is. In 19... 70, February, Lois had invited us to uh, come to the house for lunch. It was my sponsor, Hazel, another gal, and myself. Now, if any of you have been to uh, Stepping Stones in Bedford Hills, you know what the layout is in the living room. But those of you who haven't, try to get yourself there to Dr. Bob's for Founders Day or Bill's birthplace up in East Dorset, Vermont. When you walk into their living room, on your left is a beautiful granite fireplace. And Bill had a roaring fire in that fireplace. It was February. and It was snowy, and I drove in the driveway, and he came running up the steps in his shirt sleeve. I said, Bill, what are you doing running out here? Because he was already not that well. And he said, I stopped smoking. should have stopped nine years ago, but I'm better. And we walked in. He had a roaring fire. Lois was a little upset with that. Um... And then the coffee table and a couch looking into the fireplace. Then their lunch table, was dining room table, was over to your right up here. Lois was on one end, then Hazel, then myself, and Bill was on this end. And a gal who she remained nameless on that side. And she was really suffering a very hard progression, depression. And she couldn't sit there. And she excused herself from the table and got up and went over and laid down on the couch so we couldn't see her, but she was in looking into the fireplace. Now, Bill loved the crowds. There was 
no doubt about that. So many people said, what was Bill like? And I said, just like you, or the fellowship wouldn't work for us. He also had some other talents, like his divine power of writing. Bill was very verbose and had some wonderful expressions. Uh, how he could write that big book called From the Experience of a Hundred First AA Members is Beyond Me. And, and he loved the crowds, but he loved better sitting with an alcoholic who was still suffering. And I don't think a minute went by when she got up and went over and laid down on the couch that Bill got up and went over and sat on the coffee table so he was facing us, looking down at her, 12-stepping her. Now that's the epitome to me of watching a 12-step work. And I used to say, why me? Why am I an alcoholic? There'll be nothing to do when I stop drinking. There'll be nothing to do. That young man who picked up a chip tonight, watch out. You're in for it. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. If anybody told me I'd be alive this long, let alone be sober this long, I'd say, you've got to be crazy. It just isn't possible. But it is. As long as we make that commitment, I will not drink this day at a time. I'd like to close a little prayer. I pray very often, but may I say first that I believe the key to my sobriety is two words. I believe in people. And to me, people are like the seeds of a flower. They need the miracle of God and man to make them grow. And to me, that is AA, the miracle of God and man. Dear Lord, please help me to accept the kind of life you have chosen for me to live. Make me ever mindful of the needs of others and what you would have me do with my life, that thy will be done. Thank you very much, and I love you. Yeah.